Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm excited. My pal uh, Ming Tsai is here today. He is, I mean, you know him. If, you're, if you've been in the culture and you care about food and entertainment, you know Ming Tsai. He's been on uh, PBS, on the Food Network. He's had really successful restaurants. Currently, his restaurant, uh, Blue Dragon in Boston, is incredibly popular, highly in demand, and has a, a really delicious and smart dessert. And um, his television show, Simply Ming, is the longest-running food television show, right? On PBS. PBS, yep. Starting season 17? Correct. 17 starting to air, or you shot? Uh, we're pre-production. We shoot in June. And uh, are you? do you get excited for it each time? A hundred percent. Like you, right? It's so... It's, it's kind of like being reborn every time because food is so organic. It changes, right? And and the best thing for me is I get to bring all my chef friends in. So I have a lot of, you know, I was just with Daniel Blue two days ago cooking at, at his place in Boston. And he, he's been, I mean, the, the thing is so great is we get to share food together, cooking together, have a glass of wine together, and then present techniques and food that people can make at home. I mean, food TV's come a long way from the Galloping Gourmet. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, on the other hand, he figured something out, kind of a formula that kind of worked, he did. right? And I'm, I have to be, I'm about a demi galloping gourmet because I start my show with a cocktail. Right. He what just you... never stopped. Right. <laughs> Which but is, no. you know, I... hats off to him. I mean, I, I copied him. When uh, you, when consciously, you mean you were aware of paying would... homage in a way to the galloping gourmet? That and the fact that a third of the people that come on are really nervous. So I realized, so the first time I did this, I had my sous chefs on, and they were a nervous wreck because they weren't chefs. They weren't the that they didn't have that confidence. They weren't front of the house people. Yeah, right? and they're like, we, we just get them a cocktail, guys, because that's gonna just relax them, and it worked. So plus, I love making drinks. I love. I have we have great uh, mixologists, bartenders, call them what you want at Blue Dragon, and I've learned all the techniques. It's just like cooking, right? You're infusing vodkas and gin. You're muddling basil, Thai basil and mint. It's just, it's it's cooking. It's just with booze. Do you make when people come over to your house? Are you the, do you make? I love. I always have a house a f- drink. It could be it could be the most famous. Two two one margarita, right? So Julio Baramillo in San Francisco, the tequila master at Tommy's. It's uh, sorry, it's two one one. Two parts tequila, one part lime juice, freshly squeezed. All their bartenders have arms the size of my thighs, awesome. and one part agave syrup. That's it. On the rock, salt or no salt, never blended. That's sacrilege. Never blended. For never a blended. Why would you waterize a drink? But so if you and your wife and your if you have people over, you're making a drink. You have I'm a drink it, for the yeah. night. You're having exactly. it be something special. Hundred percent. And I do a lot of champagne cocktails too, because that's. It's easy. You have a cure. You, you, I make a passion fruit or a, a cassis or a pineapple syrup with fr- a good champagne. You're done. I love the culture of drinking. I'm not really a drinker. And I, I, the times I do, when I read, like, Kingsley Amos wrote this great book about entertaining at home. He's a great British writer. And uh, w- when I read it, I, all the rituals of drink I love, Every yeah. all those parts of it, the way you connect over drink. And, and, just, and, the, and how you hold your hand when you stir and, you know, all the, just, there's so much folklore, right? 32 and, times, 64 times, I mean, how much do you stir? All that stuff. The shape of your ice, the shape of your glass, it matters. Oh, it does, though. It when you can matters. have, like, I love Negronis are my favorite drink. And it's, way I, before Negronis were hip, I, that's the drink I drank. Right. It's what I like. But when you get one with one of the giant ice cubes, a it just somehow feels better. It, it's, it's, it is better. Why? Because it doesn't waterize your drink. Keeps it super cold, but your first drink is just as strong and tasty as your last sip. Right? When you have because of this when you have a big surface cube. area that the cube exactly. takes up. Exactly. you have all if you have crushed ice, your your Negroni's done in ten seconds, right? It's yeah. Just, oh yeah, that's like gross. Water. Suddenly it's, it's a slushy. It's yeah, a Negroni you might, slushy. you might as well blend it, right? So uh, you're you light up when you talk about this stuff. Oh yeah, I, I food and beverage. 
food, beverage, and hospitality. That's been my life. And it's been my life since I was literally born because my parents, our parents opened our house to every person always. We would have people over all the time and it's always to come eat. Always cook. Where'd you grow up? Dayton, Ohio, culinary capital of the world. It is. Well, that's what people usually, <laughs> yeah. they usually point to Dayton. Yeah, we have Skyline as, Chili. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was the local, Ch- before you, I know your parents opened a restaurant yeah. at some point, but what was the local Chinese restaurant? There literally was like Peking House or something. And there was actually, there was this restaurant, uh, and I can say this is not a dick, diss no, to anyone. Course. Chop Suey Carryout was the local Dayton, Ohio. That's what it was called? It was called Chop Suey Carryout. Were the owners Chinese or American? Yeah, they were. And they served Egg Foo Young and Chop Suey. I'm like, oh, my God. And that was like – that, that was one of the reasons my mom, who opened up the Mandarin Kitchen, was like, okay, we need traditional Mandarin food here. Because – she. and then the reason she opened it is both my brother and I went to Andover. So they were empty nesters four years earlier than a normal household, right? So we're in prep school. And she did a bunch of cooking schools and loved to cook. And all her friends like, can you open up a Chinese restaurant, please, Iris? Because – we just need good Chinese food, and she opened it. What were they cooking in the house for you? Like, and, and I have Mo- a couple questions about yep. this. So yep. me, I'll ask it, and then you can answer. We, we both. cooked a bunch of stuff because look, my, uh, I was I'm first generation Chinese, so you're first generation American. Uh, First generation, yeah. First generation were, America. Sorry, did sorry. I say Chinese? Yeah, you okay. said first generation yeah. Chinese. You're first generation yeah. American. I'm the one thousand generation right. Chinese. Yes, right. <laughs> first generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, actually, true story. I'm the hundredth generation Psy. Oh, the first sigh, because you must... I know about the... yeah, yeah Finding yeah. your roots, right? I guess. Harry so, Gates, yeah. Huang, Skip Gates. Huang Di was my great-great-grandfather, who was the original emperor of China. Yeah, so, it's amazing. So there you go. So anyway, yeah. So I was first-generation American born here. So we had... My parents wanted to Americanize. So we would have burgers and hot dogs, and my dad who's an engineer, he's actually literally a rocket scientist. The reason we're in Dayton, Ohio, is he was chief scientist at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, civilian in the Air Force, designing the B-1 bomber. He literally is a rocket scientist. But he would go to junkyards, because we would buy a gold circle, a $49 grill, but the burner is crap. It's like a 4,000 B2 burner. He would go to the junkyard, find a big burner from an old Chinese he was an engineer. He was an engineer, and became a 30,000 B2 burner. And we'd buy a big tieban, a big piece of steel, and he would make Texas toast and Mongolian baby. And we were actually a very effective catering group so me my brother and the two grandparents six of us we we did a party for 2000 2000 people just six of you did six of us because it's all organized we had all the egg rolls rolled we had two of these things frying we had two of these things just going at it we charged like six dollars a head which was a third of the price of any other caterer and all of that statute of limitations eight years it was cash and of we course. just pocketed it yeah, that, yeah, of course you did. You were kid. I mean, we you were did. a kid, right? We're a kid, and we're Chinese, and why pay taxes when you don't have to? Well, <laughs> a long time ago, by the way. No, that's fine. I'm sure now, though, you're really now that you're a oh, famous now, person. Yeah, you're, now I don't take cash. You're like that, not no. taking cash like no, no, that because no, no. not if, publicly. If you, if you are, we have to not. Uh, but put I did the get into Yale, so we won't talk about how I got into Yale. Okay? No, of course we'll we understand outside. that now. Yeah, no, no, but um. When you were so they wanted to sort of Americanize because they right. were they were here, which is like Turkey Thanksgiving things like that. So mom would try that, but the best food, of course, always was Chinese. But when you were when you were in school as a young person, because you have this incredible gregarious way with people, and part of that is you were a successful athlete. I mean, there's all this this stuff, but you're really good with people. You're really good at making Thank a you. connection, and it's you know it's. Uh, not surprising, a first-generation immigrant person has – there are choices you have to make about yep. how you're going to assimilate. Yep. And so, you know, when I watched Chang's show, and Chang's an old friend of mine, yep. and, and he talks about, you know, when his mother would send him to school with strange food and what yep. – food that seemed strange. Now everybody wants that food. But then – Oh, same thing so, for me. Well, how many um, Asian people – kids were in your school? Was it a decent Two. community? 
Two, my it, brother and me. That's We're it. the only two Asians in the entire grade school, kindergarten through sixth grade. So the good so, news okay, was... Tell me a little bit about right, that. I know so, you talk about that a lot, but I so want to hear So we were the it. stereotypical Asians. We actually were smart. We were good at math. We right. didn't have a calculator belt or anything, but we were smart. But we were also were athletes, to your point. So they weren't, we weren't the Chinese nerds. We were just normal Chinese kids that were good in sports. And But at lunchtime, yeah. same thing. My mom would give me a thermos of red roast pork and three potato buns. And I would pull out this part and open it. And they'd be eating cafeteria food, which was crap on steel on steel trays you could pay 25 cents for the lunch uh, or you could eat red roast hoisin pork potato buns and a chinese slaw and it was it was the last thing from weird everyone be like what's that oh they wanted oh, it oh they wanted to trade oh sometimes i would come home with like four tuna fish sandwiches and stuff where'd you get that I was like, well i split a oh, pork pie really for these funny. guys oh yeah that they there was a popular thing it wasn't like you were weird it was like dude that tastes so they were good. into it a hundred percent so you actually learned a lesson that food was a connector right it, then. It's it's the absolute connect. It's the glue of my life, honestly. Food. And you figured that out early on. Early on, that and, that was and the I case. figured out because my parents would always welcome people into the home with food. Neighbors. Neighbors. Uh, we would have the other four Chinese family in Dayton, Ohio. We were Chinatown at the time. Did, right? did you feel like? Uh, and so you didn't feel like an outsider. You felt Not like you all. were a part of the community. I mean, honestly, I had never had any racist jabs at me in Ohio. I've had many more in Boston, Massachusetts. Three years ago. I mean, now. What do you mean Still, three years ago? Three, dude, listen to this. Three years ago, I'm, I'm doing a Squash Busters event, and we're out, and we're all, all these squash pros, right? Or you know, My brother-in-law, they're all in the pub. Rusty I'm, Habib. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I'm waiting outside, and I'm talking to this gigantic uh, black guy who's really nice, size of a Sub-Zero, and he knew who I was. We're talking about food and stuff. I'm waiting in line, and this little Southie Boston guy cuts in front of me. There's six people behind me. And I look at him, and I'm like, hey, dude, there's a line. And he looks at me and goes, why don't you go make some dumplings? No! And I look at him and says, and I, my first thing is, you know, I actually make great dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's funny you say that. And before I could do anything, the Sub-Zero boy grabs him and, like a cartoon, throws him between two cars, and he bounces. And says, you never fucking come back here. And I'm like, dude, I was going to do that, but thank you. Wow, that's it's really funny. It's just like, I actually well, make good dumplings. That's, that's awesome. really funny. That's like that moment in Casino when De Niro's like thinking about what to do and Joe Pesci just yeah, starts yeah, stabbing exactly, the guy yeah, exactly. in the neck. Same thing. He's like, like, I was trying to figure out why he said it. Yeah. And Tommy was just yeah. uh, did it. going, Tommy yeah. just did it. You know, yes. um, that's crazy, Tony. That's a crazy story, man. Yeah. True story. But, you know, but really. But you're saying growing up, though. Growing up in Ohio, no. We were, again, because we weren't. We weren't the stereotypical Chinese kids, right? I mean, we loved all sports, and and and, and, and we didn't. And I'd say they dress. We dress funny, but we we were assimilated, right? And and our English was fine, right? My English is very good now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So obviously, you could speak. You were able to speak the language well. Yeah, which, what were the sports that you were good at originally? I mean, I know we'll talk about um, later. But the, we'll, the key sport growing up was tennis. I played tennis since I was four years old. So I played tons of tennis tournaments. I and Michael, I wanted to be Michael Chang. Right. So you were Chinese a competitive... Game. Competitive. I wanted to play in Wimbledon. Actually, at age seven and eight, so I'm going to make Wimbledon one day. Didn't come close to Wimbledon. Smartly, my father, while I was at Andover, I played tennis. I made varsity. I was a good tennis player. I tried out for the basketball team, first winner. And within seconds, I knew I'm not At Andover, at you tried At Andover, out. right. And there's an Ivory Flukas, who became a great friend of mine, the six-foot... Ford, uh, African-American kid that was a great, and he was dunking the ball, and I'm practicing foul shots. So sure. I realized you early realized that on that this game. And my dad smiled and says, you know what? Why don't you try squash? And his motive, ulterior motive, was that might help you get into Yale. Because squash, of course, is an Ivy League sport, among other things. And because I had decent hands, it worked out. Well, and yeah, I you loved were a it. tennis player, and yeah. it was an easy, and it, it, a relatively it, easy transition. Correct. 
Yeah. Um, if you're willing to focus, but th- if you sorry, and e- I mean I've tried to play squash, and I'm a decent athlete. I'm not an athlete like you, but I can play all sports. Right. And um, so I could walk onto a squash court, and I did in college. I I you you know I told you though I was friends with other guys on the Tufts team yep. that played against yep. you. So, um, I would hit with them, and then that's fine. But to to get really great at squash and understand position and the uh, geometric parts of the game and the chess-like parts strategy, of the game strategy, takes strategy. A, an incredible amount of conditioning. It's one of these yep. sports that, because people don't know it because of what it sounds like, the word, and what it, people think that it's sort of a jokey sport, like badminton or something, yep. but it's really an incredible athletic competition. Oh, and by the way, Olympic badminton is equally grueling as Olympic ping pong as it is squash, yes. right? I mean, you see these professional ping pong players. They're, well, their I, calves I've are bigger com- than... I was a competitive... Anyway. I'm a competitive table tennis player. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, let's so go I, sometime. I, That's fun. I've done that, and I know how hard it is to become so really good. great at that and how drenched you are with right. sweat when you play. But but the kind of focus that it takes, and what I'm, what I'm wondering about, because it's clear to me when I look at the path of your life and your career that you have a real power. Maybe it's your superpower even is... To be able to laser focus on more than one thing, and I want some. What I wonder about is how you learned to focus and how you choose even then and now how you choose what to focus on. Is it is it out of uh, a goal setting or is it out of enthusiasm or some combination of both? It's a great question, Brian. It's you know what I, I've been very lucky. It's I always focus on what I loved to do. Yeah, me too. Right? Because and my, my parents trained us this. Like, for example, so I, I'm at Yale. Every summer I'm going to Paris to learn, to master French at Alain Française, and then to do an apprenticeship at Boulangerie, and then eventually go to Coron Bleu. My mom and dad knew I loved cooking because I was cooking at the Mandarin Kitchen. <clears throat> so it's no shocker, junior year, before I start senior year, I come back of from college. Paris. This is of college. college. This is college. I sit him down and, says, and I just came back from Coron Bleu and look, look, guys. And this is when I discovered a Coron Bleu, like, damn, the French can cook too, right? Because up to that point, it was all Chinese-Chinese, right? And I immediately thought, Frenese cuisine, French-Chinese. Thank God that name didn't stick, but I was thinking blending. So I came back, and I'm like, look, guys, I'm going to, one, finish my degree because you spent lots of money here, so I'm going to get my bachelor's in engineering because you have to, and that I did. But two, I'm going to move to Paris the day after I graduate and learn to cook. So my mom, who's been on my show, and my parents both have been on my show, gives me a huge hug and says, son, you are so lucky. At such a young age, you know your passion. Promise to give 110%, support you wholly. I look at my dad, who's much more pensive and literally a rocket scientist. He goes, son, you weren't going to be a very good engineer anyway. Go cook. Ah, that's great. (laughs) Wow, dad, that's rough. But funny enough, it's come full circle because, you know, I'm on Home Shopping Network. I'm now designing kitchen equipment, induction burning, you know, uh, thermodynamics and fluid dynamics and pressure cookers. That all matters. So, uh, and then, of course, on HSN, like, you know, Yale Mechanical Engineering. So, it is more window dressing. that stuff matters. But but I do understand how PV equals NRT, why pressure and temperature relate. And that matters when you cook. And so the the answer is that you you are willing you'll sort of pursue it seems to me like a conventional path, but you're willing to diverge. Yes. And you're willing to sort of fully commit when your passion or enthusiasm tells you that you should, and kind of without regard to consequence. A hundred percent. For example, my style of food, right? Uh, in my opinion, and there's a lot of Italian and Japanese chefs and Korean chefs that do not agree with me, but the two best cuisines, the mother cuisines, are French and Chinese. Chinese first, right? It's just, it is the oldest, period. 
So immediately when I learned French food in that summer, I'm like, oh my God, I got to blend these two. These are the two best cuisines of the world. And and I'm not the first to think of it. Wolfgang Puck, I'll give him credit, Chinois, right in LA. That was a groundbreaking restaurant. Ken Ham. Yeah. Ken Ham, you may or may not know, he's in London a lot. He, he's he's Hong Kong board, cooked a lot in France. He used to live in Berkeley. He was a consulting chef at Silks of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in San Francisco, where I took a job with Ken Oranger, my best chef friend, because he was the father of East-West Cuisine at the time. And I, I wanted a mentor because I'm like, oh, my God, there's someone else that actually does what I thought I thought of. And that's how it started because those techniques. And those are the roots work. of East West, which that's was the, the show that you had years later. It wasn't even East your meets first. West. Yeah. I mean, East meets West wasn't yeah. even your first sort of way you were appeared to people, right? Or uh, was the East first show? East West was my first show, but I was on two years prior on various other right, shows. Right. You were on cooking other shows, and, cooking on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready, set, cook, right? And things like that. And, yeah, so and getting... I loved it. I mean, I, I was lucky. The people asked me how to, you know, what's the secret on getting TV? There is no secret. You just need to be passionate about what you do and you will be found. Right, and and I was so lucky. I was I was at Santa Cafe in Santa Fe at the time. I was executive chef, my first exec chef job. Uh, food Network was coming through with a show called Dining Around. Nina Grisman and Alan Richmond. It was one of the first original Food Network shows. This Alan, who wrote for uh, GQ for GQ a long for, time, uh, decades. And so this was '96, and find out later this was actually their talent search show it wasn't just let's get three chefs in santa fe see what they do oh you didn't know this no, though no not at all they were trying to find chefs they're building the food network and, and honestly we all sucked in the beginning right because we're like we're chefs i'm a smart ass as you can tell and you know you know me pretty well now so the first thing i ever said on tv i look at the camera which most chefs don't even because you're it's, it's hard right and it's, if you've never done it i look at the camera and says hey i'm ming sai i was born chinese i'm still chinese i'm gonna cook lamb for you today that's awesome so the producer's like oh my god a chef that made a joke yeah he can let's talk. bring him back to this and bring him back to that and eventually like hey look gets a little media training let's get you your own show was that an ambition no not at that time i i knew in the back of my head the power the irrational power of tv so I knew if I could get TV, and I did like, I, I, I was always a showman as a kid, right? I didn't mind the limelight. So I knew that this is something I could actually be good at. Because I have no, my, I have confidence looking at a camera, and I know I can do good food. So with that confidence, maybe I should be teaching. And I always taught. I taught tennis to little kids when I was playing. When I was 13, I would teach six-year-olds. So I, I liked that mentorship teaching part. And that's what, you're a chef. That's all you're doing is teaching. To be honest, yeah, teaching the teaching cooks the, under you to the make cups. the things the way you want it. Sous chef and the but cups. Was your ambition? I'm gonna, so I'm gonna learn the French style of cooking. So I'm gonna understand. I already know how to cook Chinese, Chinese. food. Let's master. French. And you felt you understood how to cook Chinese food, not just because you learned from your mother, but then you cooked in a restaurant. Yep. Which when you were still in high school, a and a and was that well, in the summers home from Andover? Um, I used to. So growing up, my my dad's parents. They fled China during the revolution to Taipei. So every other summer from age zero to about age 12, we went to Taipei for right. the whole summer. Right. So we, Grandpa, yeah, yeah, would take us on the eat all the street food and, and just see, you know, chickens being hacked and ducks being hacked and rabbits. And just we would see all this amazing food. And were you food. fluent in Mandarin? Uh, I was learning it, yeah. Then? Yeah. Oh, then I was fluent. I mean, I'm, I'm, thinking, still, I'm still fluent. I was probably better when I was 13 than I am now reading and writing. I can't read and write. But I can, you're I conversational? Can, oh, 100%. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done stuff in China and stuff. Um, I, I can't do a business negotiation, right? But, but when you were walking around there, I'm trying to, because I'm trying to oh, put yeah, together yeah. for myself this, this multicultural uh, outlook that you have, yeah. which is you were someone who could go and speak 
French, yep. and then you could go and speak Mandarin. Yeah, and and, and that's so helpful because they'd be like, lie, 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 tung you, tung you, but they literally grab you at Ximending, which is this center of food court, and they would get you in the seat, and before you could say anything, pot stickers hits the table. Right. So now you're a customer. So right. before you go, no, 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 boom, pot stickers. Right. That's like three card yeah. Monty, but yeah, with yeah, food, yeah, 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 basically. Exactly. But by the way, it cost like 40 cents for 12 pot stickers back then, right? And, and Grandpa loved There's the most famous dish in Taiwan. It still exists, but back then it's called Gobli Balza, which literally means this tastes so bad, not even a dog would eat it. Bao, right? Not that appetizing, right? But it was the most. It was, it picture a picture a soup dumpling, but made into a hockey puck shape and seared crisp on both sides. But when you bite into it, it still had the hotness of a soup dumpling. They were phenomenal. Gobli Balza, and my favorite. So that have you ever made them? You know what? I've never... I, I do. We call them bings. We made share oh, well, bings. Sure. So, so I, I made my bings a little bit smaller. I never called them dogs can't even right. eat uh, these. Bings, bings often don't have something in the middle of them, though, right? They're, yeah, they're, 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 these, my bings are small hockey puck shapes. But yeah, but there's also tsunyong bing, which is a scallion pancake. So right. bing can mean like a wrap type thing as well. Yeah. Well, they're so popular here. And yeah. I don't know if they're super popular in Boston, but not bing, yet, not like here. it's a real thing here. Oh, no, you have. Yeah, you All have. over oh, the yeah, place here. Bing. Yeah, yeah, jam bing, which is the thing that rolls around and they make... Then they pass up. That, but, that's but more like a Dave has crumb. bings in a couple of different oh, yeah. spots well, oh, now. Hey, there's the, the AOL Time Warner. There, yeah. but also um, they do stuff at Noodle. And right. there's a few places even in this neighborhood now. Right. That, Which are it's a real. so good. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's like a, It's the best street uh, food ever. Or it's Yeah, my, Sammy, my son, who you just met. Yeah. Uh, he turned me on to that years ago, actually. He was like, you got to try this thing, Bing. And I hadn't heard of it, which... Anytime he can get ahead of me on a food trend, it's a big deal because I'm pretty, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty wired in yeah, the you are. world of food. You got a few years on him too, so. And yeah. So it was a, an accomplishment. But so you're learning then what you like. Right. Are you also learning how to cook that stuff then? I are would spend, interested? oh, absolutely. Because So you're there with your grandfather. I'm there with my grandparents, Aha. And my grandfather was a good businessman. So he had a driver, he had his maid, uh, who was a really good cook. Aha was an amazing cook. House cook, and I would always hang out. When my parents were there, like, where's Ming Hao? Because I'm my name is Ming Hao, my brother's name is Ming Shi. We're both known as Ming Sai in the business world, so it gets a little confusing. We're not confused, but yeah. And, sure. and by the way, for the record, he takes full advantage of it. He'll call Nobu at seven thirty on and Saturday. Say it's Ming Sai. So, Hi, this is and our voices are so. This is Ming Sai. Is anyone can squeeze me in? And they show up. They're like. You're not Ming Sai. He goes, oh, you thought I was my brother. That's so funny. Is my table ready? I mean, no shame. No shame Does whatsoever. he look like you at all or not? No, not even good. They would say, you're not. And he sometimes shows ID. Oh, that's my brother. You got a good table, right? It's, oh, it's, that's it's, hilarious. It's, it's hilarious. So, um, uh, but you were with, so you were yeah. with uh, uh, the... Aha. So I would go in the kitchen and watch her cook. Everything. From breakfast, from, you know, we would fry eggs in a wok, right? That's how you do Chinese breakfast, to... Literally slaughtering chickens, watching chickens run around the kitchen. It was everything, start to finish. And I loved that. But at, So at that time, you knew your parents' plan for you was something else. I was supposed to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I'm that, a good Chinese son, right? And you carried that, that around with you. That, that's why... Yeah. And did part of you know you wanted to cook then? Or did you sort of like not own that early on? No. By the time I was cooking my mom's restaurant, Manor Kitchen, at 14 and 15, I'm like, this is so cool. I got the restaurant bug. You can make people happy through food if it's delicious and a good price. And then they come back the next week and they're like, hey, Ming, I love that. Like, oh, my God, they're actually coming for our food, right? And then and then they became family. And that whole hospitality bug I got early on. I'm like, this is what I want to do. But, okay, let's go to let's go to Yale. Let's do the engineering. Let's, let's, let's did, do everything because they came to this country to get us, set us up for the best possible. And so that sense of duty, you genuinely felt the sense of duty. It wasn't just, oh, this is an obligation. You felt like um, you wanted to actually honor them. 
and my grandparents, right? My my grandfather went to Yale class in 1923, right? Right, and so I, you know, for me not to try to continue that legacy in my eyes would have been a failure. So when I was at Andover, it was, was got to get a Neil, got to get a Neil. Did your dad go to Andover? No. no. Your mom? No, no. But my grandfather went to Northfield Mount Hermon back in the day to learn Chinese. Uh, sorry, to learn English. I'm getting my American Chinese thing mixed up. Uh, but funny enough, listen to this. My grandfather, class of 1923. My son is going to be class of 2023. Unbelievable. 100 years later. I mean, it's like, and, and even more amazing than that, we all know about this whole Yale scandal and all those college scandals and stuff. The current squash coach is David Talbot, my brother-in-law, right. who introduced me to my wife. He's still the Yale squash coach and is going to coach my son next year. He coached you. 37 years later. He coached how, me. How good is your son at squash? He's good. He's not. Can he, he beat you yet? Hell no. Yes, he can crush me. You can? <laughs> yeah, because you know what? The, the, the first time you lost, what was it like? Well, see, that's how the did thing. He beat you, you know why? I am so pissed about this because he's, you know, 12, 13, 14. I'm, I'm totally. You're handling I'm, it, no problem. No problem. Then I rip a meniscus. Ah, yeah. So, and I didn't play for two years. So when I came back, like, who are you? You were smoked. He just yeah. smoked you. So there was never the changing of the racket of the guard. It was just so over. Bad. It was just over. But it's not over because I still have another 30, 40 years. So. Where you can get him back, you think? I Let me just say, once you beat your dad at a sport, yeah. it's pretty much over. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think you give that. I, I, yeah. I don't think you give that back. Well, are you still competitive when you play sports? Oh my god, I hate losing. I mean, I I I hate losing more than love winning. Well, in yeah. every sport, right? I are you kidding? When my kids were young, we'd go up the staircase. I would knock them to make sure I won. And my wife, would be like, what are you doing? He goes, uh, let them win. I goes, I'm not letting them win. No. There's no participation award in this family. If you win, if you're first. Right, that's your. That's that, it. That's your. Absolutely. And your, your, you think your kids benefited from that? 100%. By the way, I'm a total softy, and I never let my uh, son beat me in sports. I just didn't. He had to win. Oh, you had I to wouldn't win. let him win. That's it's wrong. I just decided it's a early on it. It makes you feel uh, if you if someone hands you a victory, you feel it and know it, and it totally devalues the win. Dude, a participation award is the stupidest thing in the world. That person got 10th place is like, why am I getting a ribbon? It doesn't make them feel play. good. They it feel actually horrible. doesn't make them feel no, good. No, it's the exact opposite that happens. I don't deserve this. This is yeah. Well, I actually had this question to ask you. Uh, I written down, and, and you just sort of said it offhandedly that losing feels worse than winning. And I, you know, when I look at you, I look at someone who's a serial succeeder, someone who over and over again has to find a way to win. And I, I wonder if you've gotten better as you've gotten older at all in taking satisfaction out of individual accomplishments. Like, a discreet, does a discreet win in business, in life feel, I mean, you're laughing, like, no. Like, does it ever, do you ever say, okay, Ming, you did that thing. Nice job. Take a breath. Have a drink. Absorb it. Or are you already thinking about the next I, win? The older I get, the more that happens, yeah. Because you have to appreciate. It, n- nothing's ever been given to me. So if I do have a win in business or whatever, I, I do let it sink in and enjoy the moment. It's really much important more than, to much do Much more it. than before. You mean you didn't used to do it? I just want, I wanted the next win. I just kept moving. Now it's like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. But I've never thought, okay, well, that's my last one. I'm done. I've never thought that. Yeah, you do, you do yeah, but, but you're willing to smoke a cigar, whether a real one or not, 100%. and say like, okay, you had a good week, or this oh. event went really well, or you made these people really happy, take a second and enjoy it. Because that's something I've been learning to get better I, at. I too. tell you, so uh, and my wife was diagnosed last October, stage four lung cancer, and the most horrible diagnosis, it just, it, it, it's true, cancer changes your life in an instant. 
the great news is Polly is awesome. She took this uh, targeted chemo pill. Cancer's gone. She's doing everything Eastern as well, like like the way we live, acupuncture and Reiki and, and massage, all that as well, shaman. She looks awesome. She feels great. So it's it's re that reprioritized my life. I was supposed to do this fast casual Chinese concert called Chow. So it's fully funded, lease signed, four hundred thousand spent on architectural plans and lawyers, a whole nine yards. Fortunately, the investor is just a really good guy. He's like, look, take care of your wife. Just pay everyone off. Send what you have left. I mean, it was unbelievable. But that totally slowed me down because there is nothing more important when that shit happens than family. Period. Kids, of course. wife. That's the most important I'm thing. I'm so world. happy to hear that and, she's doing and well. So you, she's doing awesome. And, and, and so, so we, so we had, we made a motto. So word of the year. So last year when I was at the, uh, our word was allow, because we can fight this diagnosis and fight all this shit, or just allow. This is what's happening. Let's figure out how to get through this. Because fighting it is not going to help anything. And by the way, the biggest killer of all in this country, this world, is stress. So if you're stressed out about stuff, you're never going to get healthy. So we believe, and we absolutely thought positively, you're going to be cured. It's just a bump in the road. It's going to be fine. And now today, it's exactly what's happened. My word this year is fun, literally. So we went to Scottsdale for three weeks. We're like, let's just go. Let's have fun. Because guess what? You can't take it with you. Kids are doing great. Kids came with us, of course, and they had to go back to school, all that. But we just had fun. And, oh, my God, more people need to do that. Because how many millions do you need? How many hundreds of thousands do you need? You just don't need it. You, you just said a lot of stuff that's worth unpacking. I mean, I want to go back right to so many people think it's an either or about how you're going to manage your health care, right? So you said a few things. One, you realized stress. You realized you could make the whole thing worse by hanging on incredibly tightly. Yep. So instead, you decided you were going to actually verbalize since we don't have a choice to allow this, we're going to allow it. Yep. We're going to be in a posture of receiving yep. what the thing is, and then we're going to work with what that is, right? Yep. And part of that means you're going to breathe, right? Yes. And you're going to allow yourself Deep breaths. to take breaths and yep. not carry the stuff, which also gives your wife the gift yes. of not having to put up a brave face for you, yep. of getting to accept we're going to allow this, whatever it is, we're going to allow ourselves to react. Yep. Then you used modern medicine to the best of its capacity. Dana Farber, baby. Thank God we live in right. Boston. You didn't say now you're interested in Eastern medicine too. Yep. You're interested in things we don't understand yep. that have been shown to either heal or help uh, put our bodies in a place to heal. But you didn't do one or the other. Yep. You would, a lot of people want to say, no, 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 I'm only going to believe in the new, fa- in the, in the Eastern, in the old right. Eastern stuff. And you decided to synthesize. Yes. Which is interesting because it's also your approach to f- like food. You you should – that's why I blend food. I take the best of each technique in green to make my food. Well, here we took the best possible technique, be that chemo, oral therapy, or acupuncture, and blended. And it's worked. Were you able to manage your state? So I'm sure you were. your priority was to make her feel okay. Yep. And your kids. I'm yep. sure actually it was make my kids feel okay. Yep. Make her feel okay. My kids are teenage boys. We sat them down. I said, look, mine's, <laughs> the mom's been diagnosed with cancer, and, and, uh, but we got this. And they looked at me and they're like, that's great, Dad. What's for dinner? Great. It's like that. Which they is were ready perfect. to. Okay, yeah, because you, you told. They, they you said, presented it in a way that I said, wasn't we got a disaster. This. She said, oh, that's great, Dad. What's for dinner? I mean, it was literally like that. 
Great. Which is when, and, and that that has helped Polly too, right? Because you have two worrying kids. Mom, you okay? What's going on? Okay, that's not helpful. That totally makes it. Yeah, of course. I mean, listen, everybody has to manage their own family their way, but that right. is a really good strategy, I think, to 100%. try to just let them know. You guys will tell you if you have to worry, right? When you have to worry, and right. obviously you built up trust, a reservoir of trust with yes. them, right? Yes. 100%. Where they knew you weren't going to be bullshitting them. Yeah. No, they knew. They knew, and then we explained it to them. And they would, and then Henry, the 16 or 15 year old at the time, was like, What stage is it? Right. Right. Because we weren't going to tell them stage four, because stage four sounds incredibly scary. When we heard stage four, we're like, Stage four lung? What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. But we're like, It's actually stage four, but it's an EGFR mutation, which meant nothing to me two to two weeks ago. <laughs> right. But now I know all about it. And because it's that, there's a particular drug developed by Dana Farber called Degriso. It's going to crush it, guys. And it's ex- that's exactly what happened. And what did you do to keep your mental state good? Did you run a lot? Like, what kind of, had it, what did you put in place for yourself? I think it's very valuable for people. Yeah. So, oh, it's, it's if a great you could question. talk so about important. it a little bit. You know, I mean, and it's important. Honestly, I didn't change anything. I kept doing what I did, which is tons of Bikram yoga, right? Soul cycling is my new addiction of three years ago. I'm addicted oh, to soul cycle. Sandy I Mon- said that on Sandy here. Sandy gave it- me a Peloton for Christmas. I'm like, you telling me something, dude? <laughs> Do you use it as it. much? Uh, I, I've used it because it's so convenient. So at 7 p.m., I don't have to go to a studio and I jump on it for 40 Soul cycle sounds ridiculous. And I haven't talked about it on the podcast, but I go like four or five days a week. It's amazing. And it's really changed my yeah. mental state. You look good, dude. I'm, no, good. I'm, I, I'll say... It's that doing that heavy cardio in that way with that environment with the teachers that you connect with. So yes. like whether for me it's uh, Sue or Maria or yeah. this woman, Sam, if I connect to the music they're playing and what they're talking about, it just – and I wear my Apple Watch yeah. and, and you see I the see that getting. I'm really burning – I'm really getting my heart rate up right. and I'm really burning calories. And so, it's fun. It's right? super fun. It's I have fun. the best time. And by the way, peer pressure works. You can't stop. I'm not going to not lift a three-pound weight because there's seven women around me with five-pound weights. I'm like, I'm not going to not lift it. Right. You, you have to do the thing because yeah. the class is doing it. I tried five-pound weights when it killed me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to back to three-pound. Oh, no, I'm, I'm on the five-pounders. Oh, ooh, excusez-moi. So I, I outweigh you, though. So so when, um, so when you kept doing your exercise. I kept doing I, I had to. You had. I mean, Spencer's a chef. And you I, kept I, traveling, too? Uh, I, I curtailed that a little bit. Absolutely. I had to be around more. And so I canceled a bunch of stuff. The biggest thing I canceled was doing the fast food casual chain. Because right. that was going to be 50 units in five states, et cetera, et cetera. That it was, sounded great. I, in theory, would have made a lot of money. But it was a message from upstairs. No, you, you need to stay home and focus. Everything you're saying is really just so smart. And, that you, and it seems to me like you wrote that off kind of without even regret, even though it must have taken a lot of planning. I mean, just casually said, we hired the people. I mean, that must have been oh, a long... A year and a half, right. two years. It must have been a long time it was planning. My life, it was my life dream to serve healthy, delicious Chinese food stir-fry in, in 60 seconds. I had it down to a system. I had. I, I went to Purdue Chicken. I'm friends with them. They were olive oil soy poaching it, so it's going to come already ready to go. They were going to give it to me at cost, less 5%, because I wanted to give that 5% to my charity. I had every purveyor with that same deal. It says, I, I want to make money and give money to charity, family reach, right? We financially help families with cancer, but I didn't want to affect my investors. You can't take 10% of the ROI and tell the investors, oh, we're helping families. They're like, I just gave you a lot of money. No, I don't, right. you know. So you have to keep business first. So you can't affect the P&L. Let the purveyors get the get in. And then there's going to be the wall of fame. Thank you, Purdue. Thank you, this. Thank you, that. So you worked that whole thing out Everything. and then you unwound I a, it. I had a million dollar lease signed. And again, this the best lesson is who you know. Meaning, 
Surround yourself with great people. So my partner, Sean Gilday, knew the guy that owned Prudential. And we're going to go into the, the new cube built there in Post Office Square. And Coops uh, is a great friend of Sean. And I called him. I'm like, Coops, I know I signed a lease. My wife was just diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he's like, listen. I'm like, what? And he does this, literally, on the phone. He goes, that was your lease. Wow. It's ripped in half. That's so moving. Right? So I'm, I'm like, Coops, thank you so much. You have no idea what that means to me. Because I, I was on the hook for a million bucks. I'm like, you know, and uh, no offense to New York, but if it was any other landlord, like, really sorry about your wife, but uh, you owe me a million bucks. Right. right? But this person breath. was willing he ripped, to He understand. literally ripped the lease. This is unbelievable. Right. And you then didn't look back. Like, didn't you may back. build a concept again, but you were yep. ready to... I still have the plans. I can... I can. And the, the, my, my great friend, the Jesse Rogers, the investor in Palo Alto, is like, you call me, you say go, we go. So what... I, I'm just thinking about you as an athlete winning and losing. What do you think you got from sports? Uh, what do you think it, it did for you in terms of... I know it, what part of what it did is it got you to be able to go to Yale and it got you to travel the world... What do you think competing at that level did for you internally? You know, it's it's very cliche, but it's so true. Nothing's free. You have to work for stuff. This is important. You have to train. I mean, I don't care how good your hands are in squash. A lot of people have talented hands. But if you don't run 440s and run stairs and do light, light, you know, sprints on the court and jump rope, you're never going to get to the next level. It just doesn't happen. It, it just can't happen because you'd pick it up if it was your children. I heard that on a podcast. Yep. Um, no, that wasn't a call. You somehow said Siri play something and it played something. Oh, really? <laughs> like without saying it, it just, oh, really? that was a Siri, yeah. NSA, baby. Yes. Watch out. So you were um, saying it, so you have to do this you, stuff. You have to put effort to it and you're going to lose a lot along the way. So if you just, if you worry about that last loss, you can't. You have to not worry about it. You have to say, why did I lose? Oh, he was in better shape. Okay. I got to train more. Or he he was stronger on the volleys. Well, I got to do more push-ups and planks. And so there's always, how can I get better? And that's life, right? You're, you're, no one's giving. No one's going to give you a presidency or a CO ship. That doesn't happen. You got to work your way up. And that and, and, and if you think you're going to never have a setback, that's not reality. You're going to have setbacks. And did you t- so you took that mindset into learning all these other things? Everything. Oh, my God, I've had a lot of failed dishes. I mean, hopefully not served to patrons. Right. But to Sometimes, myself. Sometimes, though, I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, no, no, no one's perfect, of course. And, you know, we certainly overcook and undercook and not. But the concept of a dish, you try, you try and you and try, try and, and you try. But after the fifth iteration of a dish with me and my chefs, if it doesn't come together, we're trying too hard. Maybe peanut butter and escargot wasn't supposed to go together, right? right? You know right. what I mean? Yes. Okay, let's scrap this dish. Because after five, if it's not really gel, usually by two or third iteration, it's like, oh, Well, especially because you're a world-class chef. So if you have an idea, right. you're probably going to be able to find oh, yeah. a way to execute it. And by the way, and I, I, I have a pad. Although Wiley might go for two years trying to solve oh, a dish, He's right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are people who, have a, who are... Um, Attacking it from a different place. In oh, a yeah. Way. I mean, these, yeah, some of these chefs I would never, I could never touch. You know, Grant Atkins and uh, Jose Andres at Minibar. I mean, they're doing this molecular gastronomy and the smoking and this. It's genius food. Because right? that's really, they're starting with a concept that's like not really a food concept. Yeah, in they, a way. they want to know how can we eat a balloon? Right. right? <laughs> like, which is, and, and Grant Atkins figured it out. It's a cotton candy balloon thing. Yes. And it's delicious. And so that's the other way. I'm thinking, of how can I get duck three ways on a dish? How right? consciously did you learn to become a business person? Right? Because isn't that a, yeah. a part of one of the things that can stop certain chefs who are really it's the most. It's the most important reason uh, restaurants do well. 
and is is what is learn the business side too. So my parents again Chinese education education education. So as soon as I told dad and mom I want to be a chef, they're like, that's awesome. Let's apply to Cornell, get a master's there, or Lausanne. That's the right. next two Cornell, which is where uh, my guest Will Guadera, my good friend Will Guadera. Yeah, no, went. I heard that podcast. Oh, oh yeah, fantastic. so Will went yeah, to deep Cornell. Love also. it. Yeah, deep breath. I love Will. Those Will and Daniel are just uh, they're so phenomenal. Just the best. Yeah. yeah, they're literally the best. But but. I, so I went. I got a master's at Cornell Hotel School, knowing I'm going to open my own restaurant one day. But let's go ahead and work in the hotel business. Let's go figure out the marketing side of it. Let's learn the finance. Learn how to read and a PL. And it was helpful to you? Oh, so helpful. Just to learn the, how to read a PL. Learn that an average food cost should be between 20 and 30. Learn that, you know, if it costs $100,000 a room to build a hotel, then your room rate needs to be $1,000. So you got to, you know, there's all these ratios that apply. Uh, and the most important, you'd get a network of people too. Right, so like when I went to apply for my SBA loan, the fact that I had a master's from Cornell Hotel School that helps, right? All that stuff helps. But most importantly is when I finally the thing that I took away from Cornell is cash flow. That is the most important thing for restaurants because what happens when you open a restaurant? Usually they're three to six months late to opening because of construction, and they're usually ten to fifty percent over budget. So now the day you open, you had this amazing budget of doing three million, you're already four months behind. So now you're like, we gotta do two hundred covers a day, or we're not gonna make payroll. And then what happens? Then you start buying choice beef instead of prime beef, and then you start buying salmon that's frozen. So you're in a spiral, and in a year you're gone. So what I you're did, actually no longer able to put something quality on the table because you can't afford, because it. You can't afford it. So what I did, knowing that, is like, okay, I'm going to raise enough money, and this is a long time ago. And was, so I borrowed $250,000 SBA loan, and I raised $250,000 for family and friends. You were so already fun. on TV, or this is before no, you were on no, TV? No, before I on TV. So only chefs knew me, but not a right. lot, right? But, but but you know, we all cook around. And I said, I'm going to do a budget such that if I do zero covers for the first three months, I can still make payroll. Right. right, and with then the five hundred thousand, yes, and I didn't have the pressure that I had to do two hundred covers every night, and I was there every day during the build out because the GC's there and 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 it was design build, so we'd be in a room like this and like, look, the plan says the sink goes here, but we would knock the walls out, the plumbing's over here. Can you put the sink there? It'll save you twelve man hours. I'm like. Put the sink there. So right. I cut and this and that. I didn't downgrade anything. I just made decisions on the spot because I was there every day. We opened on time. We opened actually 4% under budget. And literally, it's so funny. My dad is so... What was the first place called? Blue Ginger. That was Blue Ginger. So Blue Ginger, we opened on a Wednesday. We did uh, 100 covers, which was unbelievable. I completed 100 covers. The next day, Thursday, my parents were there helping out too. The next day, we did 80. And my dad is like... Uh, that's not a very good trend, trend line. That's not yeah, a good trend. trend like, line. Not a good trend. That is two days. Are you kidding me? And then Friday, Saturday, we did like 150, 200. And, and then you were off and, and running? Our, yeah, dude, we made profit the first month. It was ridiculous. Right, was but you planned for that. That wasn't well, an yeah. accident, right? No, no, I definitely planned that. I don't need the pressure that I have to do X amount of people. And th- without that pressure, you can just cook. And at, the, at that time, did you were you thinking about having a national profile? Were you thinking about coming to New York? Were you thinking about any of that stuff? Or did you think, if I stay in New England, that's fine with me? Well, here's the true story. The job I applied for before Blue Ginger was for Union Pacific, and a guy named Rocco Despirito beat me out. And I remember calling... Rocco took the job that you wanted. We were the last two chefs. And I remember calling Ken Orange, and I'm like, 
the fuck is this Despirito, Italian chef that got a job? He goes, oh, no, he's really good. That, that's not a bad defeat there. And thank God, because my to be wife... This, that was to be executive chef? To be... To, Rocco, the head chef, yeah, of course. Rocco got it, right? And, and, but, again, a blessing from above. Because my wife said, I will go to New York with you. She did not want to live in New York. She, but she would do it for my career. And she was completely relieved I didn't get that job. And thank God, because I would not have been the chef owner. I just would have been the executive chef. Instead, I went to Boston. Again, Ken Oranger, my chef, was come to Boston. Todd English was there. A lot of chefs were there. And my style of food was not prevalent at all there. Uh, San Francisco, there's already What year did it. you open? 95. Oh, no, no. I got married in 95. 98. February 98. Right. And, and I happened to open in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is similar to a Greenwich here, right? And... There was no really other good restaurant besides Todd had a figs there. So this it wasn't I was wasn't the best East West restaurant in Wellesley in that whole area. I was just one of the good restaurants. Yeah, period. one of the this only a, only good restaurant that had a good wine list and good food that you can get in, have reservation and have good stuff. I mean, oh, it's still the case that there there's still neighborhoods even in New York City like where I live on the Upper West Side. Red Farm is not the best Chinese restaurant. It's the best restaurant. It's delicious. It's just so good. Yeah. But there's nothing else, like basically you want to go there because there's nothing else within a big radius that's yeah, really true. very good. So right. I can imagine in Wellesley, yeah. as and I live in Manhattan. If I would go 15 blocks, there is. I'm talking oh, about right in the yeah. little neighborhood. Um, by the way, yeah, go to Red Farm if you come to New York. Red there Farm's are two of them, delicious. and they're really spectacular. And they're Peking Duck, right? decoy is it? Decoy underneath, yeah, underneath Red right. Farm, which yeah. is really great. Um, a couple more things, and then I'll I'll let you go. Uh, are you able to have civilian friends? <laughs> or are most of your friends somehow connected to the no. world of... Well, are you a civilian, Brian? Well, I, you know, I'm half a civilian. <laughs> yeah. I, I have lots of friends that are civilian or call my friends civilian. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and look, in the chef world, you get to meet a lot of great people. Just like in your world, right? Yes. You get to meet a lot of great people. And you know what? That, that's some of the funnest part of life because I love sports. I love going to the Masters. I get to cook with wheels up. And you were there last year. Well, oh, yes. We you and I met on a – we were being flown by somebody to the Masters. I was yeah. covering it for Sports Illustrated and yeah. you were to, cooking for a bunch of people and I had 200 pounds of butterfish on the plane. And that stuff was so fun to do, right? And, and to be able to cook uh, – the, the best part of Celebrity Dumb for me is you can actually have a platform to talk about good causes, right? And that I love because – you're blowing it if you have celebrity dumb and not making money, pushing a cause. You know, my cause is family reach. We financially help families with cancer because it's the number one cause of personal bankruptcy today. Cancer is the number one cause of bankruptcy, which is crazy. And it's not Obamacare. Thank God it's Obamacare. Is if you're a typical household, two kids, parents, each make $100,000 each. For the record, the average household income in America is $53,000. And the average cost of a child with cancer is $85,000. You do that math, you're bankrupt. You can live in Wellesley and have a beautiful home and you each make $100,000. But if your kid gets cancer, the wife, the mom usually stops working. Now you went from hundred k to uh, $200K to hundred k You're not making your payments. And you went to Harvard B School. So that's a broken system. And we need national health care, but I can't do that myself. But Family Reach is a place that we literally... We've morphed in nine years. I'm the president of National Advisor Board. I've raised $7 million myself through my cooking live events, which I got to get to you one in Boston and New York one day soon. And we talk about this story. And now, 
Now we I'll are. I'll come interview you at one. I mean, we can do oh, the yeah. whole thing oh, together. 100%. I'm in. And, and now we're we're part of Biden's moonshot program, and we got farmers and insurance companies and hospitals. They all understand there's a big problem here, and we need transparency because how could that drug that costs X amount now be ten times more once it gets to the patient? That's so uh, it's wrong. It's a beautiful cause. I mean, right. I've, I know many people who've gotten in real trouble in, in that way. You see the GoFundMes all the time on oh, online. Good people. I mean, I good people Im- who just got themselves got I sick and got not, themselves in an impossible situation. If I didn't have of my not meat, their fault. The last thing on my mind when my wife was diagnosed with cancer is I'm going to end up homeless. But that's a real concern for a normal American family, which is not right. Yeah, for me, the thing that I've been really thinking about a lot is, um, and the the thing I just find myself reaching to give to all the time is just the New York Food Bank because, yeah. for me, eating the way I do in Manhattan. Having a TV show that's about the food of Manhattan, I feel like if you go out and spend, um, if you make the decision and you're fortunate enough to go spend a couple hundred dollars on dinner, I feel like you should take a moment and really think about that and maybe think about giving $200 to a food bank. 100%. And that if you do, it's sort of like a carbon offset. But it is more than that. It's a way to understand how privileged you are. It's a way to understand the the difference between... um, not really thinking about the difference between uh, uh, spending you know, whatever it is on food and, and more than that, but being where there are people in your city who would, for $10, is a day changer for them. Oh, 100%. I mean, look, I, and so I, I'll, I, ne- I'll I, never forget. When, I, when we left Santa Fe, my wife and I had $1,200 to our name in our bank account, right? So we can fully appreciate money and eating and food right and i had parents she had parents we we're not going to go homeless but that's that was our bank that's account. a big safety i mean i'll say that the fact that you weren't going to go homeless and neither was i is a big safety net a huge safety going net. to college without debt is a huge safety net oh my net. god that's the biggest privilege i've ever had i, I say it all the time out two hundred fifty thousand dollar debt i say it all the time getting to go to college that my father could pay for yep. uh i agree is uh changes the next 30 years it's, of your life. It's the best gift my parents ever gave me. And, and that my, the fact my, that I have, my wife and I have been able to pass that on to our kids just makes us feel very good. And I know how hard it is for people. It's an almost impossible thing oh to give, well, my, which is also my, unfair. One of my gauges of success, I said this early on in my career, is if I can give my children at least what my parents gave me, I'm a true success. That's what I would always say. And it's true because they, they, they took care of me. But they also taught me Harun Habal. Good things happen to good people, period. So do good. The do idea good. is so then be good. Do good. And all I tell my kids is leave your mark. This is no free ride. Leave your mark. How do you – um? so in this current culture that's uh, become suddenly aware of the ways in which bosses and employees talk to each other, um, not on the Me Too front even, right. but just on in the general sort of way in which people communicate – how do you create a kitchen atmosphere that isn't brutal? Because every sort of rendering um, in the popular culture of uh, chefs, and I've been in a lot of kitchens, and yes, some, I mean, you can walk through Daniel's kitchen, either Daniel Balut or Daniel Hunt, and it's calm. It's quiet. But, calm. but how do you create a, a kitchen atmosphere that isn't brutal? You know, I, the, in this instance, I have to give the French kitchen culture credit. The, one of the first things I learned when I was working in France is you say bonjour and au revoir. So you shake everyone's hand when you get there, dishwasher's on up, and then you shake everyone's hand when you leave, and you thank them. And even when I was a cook, I wasn't the chef, I'm just a cook, but that was just a normal hello. And I swore to myself, 
was I was a cook and I'm cooking all over and and chefs and sous chefs wouldn't pay any time of day to you because you're just a cook. And once I got to a sous chef, I wanted to do dishes. A chef, of course, with their ego would never allow that. I swore to myself, look, I don't care who comes up with the dish. I don't care if it's a prep cook. If it's the best, best beef dish we can do tonight and that guy came up with it, guess what? One, I'm going to get credit for it. And two, it's the best beef dish we can do tonight. So put it on. So it's respect. You say hello and goodbye and thank you to every person in your restaurant at all times. And you don't throw pans and you don't have tirades and you don't do that. And look, do I yell and scream? I absolutely do. But I close the door in my office and I'll just rip a new one to the person that wasn't listening and overcooked the lobster three times. Right? Like, dude, do you want to be here or not? And that that's behind a closed door. But berating in public? You don't do it in front of a group of people. Oh, that's because that completely goes, if I'm going to say that I meditate and I do this and I'm calm and this, and then they see me yelling and screaming, how's my sous chef not going to yell and scream at the cook? Because, like, chef, I just saw you do that. I don't right. care what you say. I see what you do. Do you still like being in the kitchen yourself? I love it. You I like being there. And co- I, How often do you it. go cook? So I, I do all the new dishes with my crews, right? But working the actual line... I mean, honestly, I will be back there if it's a special dish. If you came in or something, right, yeah. I do if a friend of yours comes in, but, but because of what what I'm doing now, um, honestly, <laughs> this sounds horrible. But I'm out there taking pictures, kissing babies. You know what I mean? Because people are there to see me, and they want to get. Well, it's like when you that. go to Rocky Balboa's restaurant in Philly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, in the movie, are. you want to shake um, Rocky's hand. But I'm trying the line. All the time. And you're tasting the food. Oh, so you're tasting the tasting, food. Before we open, tasting the sauces, tasting the vinegar, tasting the boiling water. Is it salty enough? Everything you can taste that's not raw. I'm not going to taste a piece of raw meat. I have to assume they can cook the steak. But everything that I can possibly taste, I taste. And you look. Either the watercress looks beautiful or the watercress is like, dude, what is this, two days old? Right. So, you, so as long as your mise en place looks good and tastes good, you have a really good shot of a great night. But if three things are off, I'm like, did you try this, dude? Did you put lime juice? In? Oh, I forgot, chef. And then, I, then that's when you know. Then I'm like, really, really, dude, right? And that—that's all I have to say. I can in, just look at my cooks. I'm like, really? And they're like, oh, you don't chef, want that chef, look. Chef. You don't no, want to get that look. That is look. that your mom's look or your yeah. dad's look? That's my mom's look. Oh, my dad is so quiet. My dad's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? We got away with anything. Dad, can I go spend the night at Tommy's? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Oh, no, stay, stay, But your stay. mom would give you the. Oh no! Oh, yeah, oh, that, you didn't good. want oh, that. Not good. Not good. Well, all right, man. Listen, everyone should go eat at Blue Dragon because you can go take a picture with Ming and um, <laughs> come for the food please don't come for the picture and the new season of Simply Ming when is yeah, that yeah we shoot in June or premiere in October so and you can also find a lot of old clips of his shows all over the internet and so. it's worth finding because uh, you know I I mean I said this when you and I met but but I was watching so much Food Network when you started on the show and my daughter and I would uh would just watch a ton together when she was very little. And, and um, you know, you really feel a connection. Like, you guys who built that that place uh, really felt like you had a place in people's homes, I think. And I think it's changed now. Food Network's still great. But the the original crews of people who, it's who were there... It's less true cooking shows. I mean, one of the reasons, and no, no diss of Food Network, but one of the reasons I left Food Network is we started doing competition shows and shows that were not true cooking. And I wanted to still teach and cook. So I jumped ship to PBS. I mean, I was nerdy. I liked watching David Rosengarden talk oh, about... Rosengarden's the best. I liked watching him talk about his, his how... History? Yeah. yeah, his sort of how and why how stuff was... How spot beer is better for oysters than champagne or vodka. Yeah, right? I mean, for it's me, that like stuff that. was super fun. Right. But I can see why in the 
current world, they had right. to move on. But I'm glad that you're on PBS. It's where you should be. 100%. Because and, 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 and you can present the show that you... is there. I mean, we're still all You there. can present the show that you want to present. 100%. All right, everybody. Ming Tsai. You can find him online. He's on Twitter. He's active on there. You can find me on there, at Brian Koppelman. Uh, you can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks, Ming. Ciao. Peace and good eating.